0: This is Star Talk.
1: Hi, I'm David Grinspoon, and this is Star Talk All Stars. I'll be your all star host today. And today's co host is comedian Chuck Nice. Hey, David. How's it going, Chuck? Hey, man,
0: it's good. Good to see you again.
1: Yeah, this is great. Really fun to be with you again. And uh, today's topic, we're going to be talking about communicating with extraterrestrials. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not only that, there's a uh, there's a controversial subtopic, which is the question, should we be just listening, like mm-hmm. we've been doing for maybe 50 years, right. or should we actually be sending our own messages? Some people think that's the way to go. Other people think that it's stupid because we're-
0: well, we don't know who we're talking to, do we? The
1: bad guy's over. Exactly. You know,
0: you're just kind of putting it out there there. You know, just it's kind of like uh, I don't know, cosmic
1: Tinder, where yeah, you, yeah, where it, you don't get to swipe right or left. You're just putting it out there. Exactly. We it, we can't we can't necessarily uh, uh, choose who we're going to be uh, who we're going to be dating on the in, interstellar scene. here. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there, there's a reason to maybe for caution, maybe not. Some people think it's silly. So we'll we'll get into that. But uh, today um, we're going to be fielding your fan questions. We're going to be doing something that we we call Cosmic Queries, yeah, and also to help us get into this subject is a uh, really knowledgeable and uh, enjoyable uh, Scientist and science fiction author David Brin, award winning science fiction author, yes. and also a published scientist uh, who's uh, done peer reviewed studies of uh, communicating with extraterrestrial intelligence, and somebody who's been very involved in the discussion and the recent debate about messaging to aliens. We're very glad to have you with us. Welcome, David Brin.
2: Great to be with you guys. A uh, couple of real brainiacs there uh, at uh, in, in Star Talk headquarters. Beam me up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I see you're in a room with a lot of books. You didn't write all of those, did you, David? No, I did not. <laughs> just, just the left-hand side of the room, right?
0: That's all. <laughs> well, as
2: you can see behind me, there is an illustration of Jim, beautiful Jim Burns cover of one of my novels called Sundiver. Yeah. So aliens are us. Always, always been fascinated with the alien. Um, I've always felt as a human being that I was immersed in a, uh, almost a galactic federation. Humans are so diverse and so weird at times.
1: Yeah, well, I, I know a lot of people have felt like they've been abducted by being so captivated reading your
2: books, but you, you haven't personally ever been abducted, have you, David? um well in the 60s there was a lot of ambiguity about you know whether or not you had i was abducted as an excuse for what you did on friday night yeah but uh, but i hear they're still using those excuses in your generation chuck
0: yes as a matter of fact they are and i say there's nothing wrong with mind expansion drugs no mind expansion yes Ooh. Right, and,
1: that, so <laughs> that, and that's 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 one of the reasons we need science fiction. So, um, speaking of mind expansion, maybe we should move into some of our uh, cosmic queries and and see what see what the readers want want to hear from us. Absolutely. What do, you got, what do you got, Chuck?
0: So, what we have is questions from all across the internet on all the different and varied platforms where we are contained as Star Talk, and um, I am actually going to jump into uh, something from our Patreon uh, listeners. Patreon is. A, a platform where you can support Star Talk financially, and what it will do is uh, get us to read your questions, no questions asked. Uh, so this is Kimberly Henry Carr, and she's coming to us from Patreon, she's a Patreon patron, and uh, she lives in Beaverton, Oregon, she says this, what more have we found out about the new ninth planet? Could this be the home of the fiery balls of light we've seen since ancient Egyptian times?
2: Wow. Wow. Well, wow. Well, David uh, knows easily as much ab- about this as I do. Uh, he's very with it on the uh, the latest news in astronomy. Uh, Phil Plate is another place, the bad astronomer. Um I, I follow all this stuff, even though my PhD is in planetary astronomy and in that part of the solar system, which is where the comets come from. Yes. Um, but as a working scientist, I'm a little more hands-off when it comes to Planet X. I'm just as enthralled as everyone else is, and uh, how cool it would be as if we had a ninth planet again. But as far as fireballs and things like that are concerned, well, you know... The science has done a pretty good job of coming up with explanations for most of those things. Uh, the, the few that aren't meteoroids uh, passing through the atmosphere, I mean meteors passing through the atmosphere, they were meteoroids when they were drifting through space and they become meteorites when they hit the ground. The few that aren't meteors uh, are probably phenomena like ball lightning or um, the, the ceramic Effect, the psycho ceramic effect in which people are crackpots. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, ceramic. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 with, with regard to this uh, Planet X, it's important to remember it hasn't been observed, but uh, it's been inferred <laughs> from some observations of the orbits of other objects right. that seem to have a pattern suggesting there may be something pulling on. So off.
0: now, is, is so what? What you're doing is you're saying that um, the inference is from a gravitational observance, uh, not an actual body uh, in uh, an object body
1: that we've seen. That's right. We haven't actually observed it in a telescope. We've observed a possible disturbance, uh, a pattern of disturbance in the orbits of other objects. So now people are predicting where it's going to be and looking for it. And if we find it, it'll be really exciting. Okay. Uh, certainly there are more objects out there in the Kuiper Belt than than we know about. And we're just beginning to explore that realm.
0: So now what would th- what would Planet X be if we were actually to identify it? Now, some people say Pluto is a dwarf planet. Some people say it's not, uh, uh, you know, what what would we most likely classify Planet X to be if there is indeed a Planet X?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. It depends on you know, by this definition that's been a little bit controversial that the International Astronomical Union adapted. It, it would depend on if it's cleared its zone, mm-hmm. whatever that means. There's, <laughs> you know, but but it, in the zone. If, the if there's nothing danger zone. If, no, exactly. <laughs> if there's nothing orbiting nearby, if it hasn't okay. scooted everything out of it its path, then it might be considered, by that definition, a planet. If there's other stuff nearby, it might be considered a dwarf planet. But either way, if it's sizable and it's pulled itself into a round shape, which it would right. have to be that sizable to have the observed effects, then it would be some kind of a planet. Wow. All right. Wow. You know, and, and as David Brin said, that this idea that it's responsible for uh, you know things we're seeing in our atmosphere, um, that's not something I'm really that... Uh, Excited about? There's no reason to think that it would be um, any more than, uh, as David said, that you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the atmosphere. Some of it we don't understand. Is it related to Planet X? There's no reason to think so.
2: Well, let me speak up for some of the science fictional implications, Mm. because um, look, uh, if if there the more we find out about the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud, and by the way, I set a novel out in the Oort Cloud called Heart of the Comet that I did with Gregory Benford. Um, that's, the, that's the vast majority of the volume of the solar system out there where it's very cold. But we've discovered from the New Horizons uh, mission, Which uh, I cite when uh, I cited in an article a little while ago, in which I pointed out that the year 2015 was by far the best year for human exploration of space ever. Far, far. Uh, more spectacular than than the Apollo era, and we're rising up out of this planet and doing incredible, competent things, even as the people of the United States are in this awful, stupid funk of uh, depression and and undeserved uh, self loathing. Uh, absolutely ridiculous that we should be losing our confidence just at the time when we're proving ourselves to be so utterly and spectacularly competent. Mm. But if you look at it from a science fictional point of view, that realm out there, starting in the asteroid belt, but even more so out there in the Kuiper belt, that realm is first off more dynamic than we had thought because the New Horizons probe showed us that Pluto and Charon, its twin moon, are dynamic, that things are happening, the, the surface is being resurfaced, there's something vaguely like plate tectonics and volcanoes happening, even that far out in cold. But the other aspect is that this is the realm where if we were visited by alien robots, this is where the robots would have their breeding ground, where they would make copies of themselves because they could make their copies out there and have their own little robotic civilization out there without interfering in the hot little nursery worlds closer to the sun, like the Earth. So, as we explore outward through the asteroid belt, especially, but also the Kuiper belt and the um, and and the Oort cloud, that's when we're going to have one of many contact scenarios. And I talk about this in my novel Earth, I'm No Existence, where the possibility is that we would then actually bump into um, a very ancient civilization of robotic emissaries and we may be sending robotic emissaries like this ourselves within a hundred years
1: wow so uh yeah the the idea of fighting finding breeding alien robots munching on Kuiper Belt objects out there uh, is kind of enticing, wouldn't you say, Chuck? Oh, without a doubt.
0: Uh, just finding them, even if they're not munching on Kuiper Belt objects, is still enticing. <laughs> as long as they're breeding. As long as they're breeding. That's the yeah. part and of, as that, long... you had me a breeding. That's <laughs> what <laughs> I'm long... saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have another uh, audience question? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Let's, uh, let's move on to Sebastian Meyer from uh, Old Greenwich, Connecticut, mm-hmm. as opposed to New Greenwich. Uh, this is what he says. Let's say we... Received a response from extraterrestrials to one of the messages we have beamed out into the cosmos over the years, such as the hello from Earth message. In your opinion, back here on Earth, where in society or in our daily lives do you think the knowledge that we no longer are the only known life in the universe, would this have the biggest impact? School, religion, business, what? What?
1: So the question isn't, would it have an impact, or what kind of an impact would it have, but more specifically, where would it have the biggest impact? The biggest impact. If we learned about... That we were not alone. unequivocally if we got knowledge of (coughs) company out there. What do you think, David, about that? Where would it have the biggest impact?
2: Well, um, you know, if you look back at the science fiction of the 50s or 40s, it was assumed that the biggest impact would be on religion, and that that... that, that, um, People would go all and get all upset and all of that. Well, that's very clearly not true anymore. Uh, the world's, uh, um, several of the world's biggest religions, um, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, were all always compatible with uh, a plurality of worlds. Judaism, it turns out, the uh, in the Talmud, um, there's always been discussion of plurality of worlds. Mormonism is based, based on, on that the notion of plurality. Exactly. Of yeah. And the Catholic Church has, has in the last 20 years, done a very, very substantial and impressive backpedaling on this issue and is now fully prepared um, under the uh, tutelage of the um, uh, Vatican astronomer Guy Um So, you know, there are some religions that would find it difficult and some of American fundamentalists have declared, and and for no reason that makes any theological sense, that the earth has to be 6,000 years old and there must be no other life form, but even these, shall we say, very emotionally invested conservative religious types have been hedging their bets. Mm-hmm. There, was one, there was one I saw recently saying that there's no way you'll find real aliens out there. And we're not counting little scummy bats of bacteria you'll, you'll probably find out there. Which means they've already accepted the notion that there's probably life. They've merely drawn their line in the Drake equation at sapient, intelligent life. Well, it's a legitimate position to take if you analyze the Drake equation and all the possibilities for why we seem to be alone. Probably, in my opinion, one of the top-ranked uh, potential explanations is that intelligence is more difficult than we thought. And uh, and, and, and believe it or not, we're still
0: having some difficulty with intelligence as we speak.
1: Yeah, I, I, I often wonder if... Uh, if uh, there is intelligent life on Earth, not even just saying that as, as a joke, although it is a funny thing to say, but that if if really really intelligent extraterrestrials would look at Earth and regard it as a planet with intelligent life uh, is an interesting question to me. I like to think that one of the biggest effects that such a discovery would have would be on um, international diplomacy and even inter-ethnic relationships that It seems as though human beings, when faced with an outside uh, threat or even the knowledge of an outsider, uh, tend to pull together. And I think that uh, faced with the clear evidence that there is somebody else out there that's not at all like us, that we would realize that we are all really like one another. And I maybe it's just my wishful thinking or my Id- uh, he, upbringing, I, <laughs> but I do tend to think that it really could have a catalytic effect on the way human beings get along on Earth. And that in turn could help us evolve into some kind of an intelligent species that might be worth talking to for, from the alien's point of view. So uh,
0: we would all get together because now there's I hate to say it, a common enemy.
1: <laughs> yeah, or at least a, co- a common other. <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: Yeah. But you know, the way, that's the way human beings do it. Like you know, we're well, we come together because you know the the you know it's like a, the 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 uh, friend of my friend is my friend, you know, that whole thing, so.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it, it, it wouldn't, you couldn't help but feel like our differences between, differences with one another were somewhat diminished by the thought that there's somebody out there really different that we're now interacting with in some way.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fascinating stuff. I love it. Well, let's move on. We have... um This is a a bit more of a technical question. This is uh, Camden Margolis from Facebook wants to know, uh, how can we make our planet more detectable using radio waves now you know you said that there was a yeah. controversy as to whether we should but is there a way that we can actually do uh, do this to make it even more detectable
1: absolutely the question of whether we should is is, is one that david and i have discussed a lot but david just um, how if you decided you wanted to how would and by the way I only have about a minute here but how how would you make our planet really detectable if you decided it was a good idea
2: well, bring back the Cold War, um, the, the Earth was at its maximum detectability during the 1980s. We were very noisy, um, and then we replaced those huge television broadcast uh, antennas with cable and, and undersea cables, and the huge, gigantic uh, uh, World War three preventing radars went away. So we're a lot quieter now, but even at its max in the 1980s, if you actually do the calculations, I love Lucy dissipates into into noise within half a light year. Uh, You would need an antenna the size of the moon aimed at the Earth to be able to detect our diffuse radio uh, signals. Now there's an exception, and that's coherent laser-like radio beams, and Mm. there are about a, a dozen antennas on this planet that can transmit those. They're called planetary radars, like Arecibo and Goldstone, and have in and Crimea. And these are the ones that the really serious METI people want to use. And fortunately, some of us have been able to stop them. Um, un- uh, be- not because we're so totally paranoid, but because we want discussions of the pros and cons before you change a fundamental parameter of this planet without an environmental impact statement
1: right if we're going to be uh speaking for all of earth and making ourselves visible in the cosmos there's a an argument that we really ought to have a conversation about this and involve the people of the planet we're going to have to take a break now and we'll have more star talk all-stars when we come back this is star talk all-stars and so what do we have, Chuck? Nice. Uh, what? What? Uh, we're uh, doing reader questions here, and uh, yes. who's, who's got a question for we us? We
0: got uh, more cosmic queries taken from all over the internet, and uh, some good questions so far. Uh, let me bring in. Let me backtrack here. Get one that I passed over. Uh, this is Nate Carlson from Ottawa, Canada. And this is what he says, with 100 billion galaxies full of stars, there's probably other life out there. Well, thanks a lot, Nate, I'm glad you, uh, you chimed in on that. But how close together do we need to be to notice each other? If we assume aliens have radio telescopes with similar sensitivity to ours, how far from Earth could they be and actually discern any of our radio signals? So how close would our neighbors have to be that we scream out of our window and they hear us?
1: That's yeah, a good question, and that is one of the few questions perhaps in this whole field of- of SETI, that we can actually answer quantitatively. There's so much that's subjective and subject to opinion and interpretation, but that's uh, that's a calculation, and it goes back to uh, in 1959 when the, the first ever serious SETI paper was published by um, by uh, Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison in the in Nature magazine, and they calculated that with Earth's most powerful radio telescope, you could communicate clear across the galaxy with another radio telescope of the same power. The problem is, of course, that that's going to take a long, long time. You know, if you're going um, more than a thousand light years, it's going to take more than a thousand years. So there's a time element as well. We have the equipment, and presumably they would have the equipment to communicate over a long distance, but the farther away you get, then you get into these crazy situations where it might take longer than your civilization has been around to have a conversation. Um, David Brin, do you have any, um, any uh, comments on um, this relationship between distance and power and how close the aliens need to be to have a, a reasonable interaction?
2: Well, there are two really important aspects to this. One is, uh, for about 30-40 years, we used the classic Drake equation, which said, "All right, life evolves in these little places around the galaxy, and that's all we have to calculate. But then it was pointed out that interstellar travel is not impossible, certainly not with robots that might copy themselves. Um, And probably colonization of some kind or another is possible. In which case, you're not you're talking about more like spreading zones. And how long would it take for such a spreading zone if you had starships that just travel ten percent of the speed of light and make planted colonies? And then they build up their civilization and then spread out and planted more colonies. It turns out you could fill the galaxy within sixty million years, which is an eye blink. It's nothing. So, yeah, so the, the question of where is everybody and why aren't we uh, seeing them is made vastly worse if you allow any kind of interstellar travel.
1: Right, because then so, if they started anywhere, they should already be everywhere.
2: That's right. And so the, the, uh, one of the things I talk about in my novel Existence is how when we get out to the asteroid belt or the Kuiper belt, we may find an entire civilization or perhaps they fought. Of, of various types of uh, space probes that were sent by previous cultures, and we'll probably be sending such self-replicating probes. But the other half of the question is, you know, how likely is it that at any of these spacing intervals we're going to l- likely be able to detect others? And those calculations have been done, and, and um, it turns out we're at a borderline. The Earth itself would only be detectable to very super-advanced aliens with huge antennas that they aim deliberately at us for a year. And then they might pick up I Love Lucy. So, right now... And then the they'd bar- probably ch- change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> the, barn door, the, the barn door excuse for Metty is, it's too late, they already know about us. But it turns out that is simply and scientifically wrong. Uh, the people who want to use these planetary radars to send focused beams out into space going you they intend to change the current situation by yelling very very loudly and very focusedly
0: so now the w- the fear of that would be that uh, we attract the Borg is that basically it and uh, before you know it we're all serving overlords that uh, come here and
1: yeah I mean the thing is you you can put it that way and it's it's Easy to make fun of because uh, there are there's so much questionable science fiction about um, about aliens coming to invade us. And a lot of people think it's even it's a silly thing to worry about. But uh, David Brin is has written about this, and he's he's actually persuaded me that if you if you use the precautionary principle, you have to ask, well, can we prove that it's not a threat, and are we certain that it's not, and are there some logical explanations for what we observe that might be consistent with dangerous aliens and then if you admit that you can't prove that it's not some existential threat then you have to say okay well then what on what basis do we decide that it's okay to risk the future of earth's biosphere
2: i got you (laughs) so uh, (laughs) it's a big risk it it turns out that that um there are mature ways to do this Um, Twenty years ago, the um, genetic engineering and genetic research communities uh, in biology uh, hold a moratorium on genetic research and had a meeting at Asilomar, California, and came out with better practices, best practices that let us have our cake and eat it too, let us have advances in genetic research while taking some very, very solid and mature precautions. Um, And the uh, NASA has a planetary protection office whose job it is to make sure that the space probes we land on other worlds have been sterilized as best we can, but not in a way that makes it so that we can't explore but but just as best we can and of course these precautions are done 10 times 100 times as strongly mm-hmm. if we're going to be returning stuff you know to earth that might infect the earth so there are mature ways of doing this
0: well, and, from from what, and what you most, say though uh, the, the, the it only takes one space herpy that's all it takes is one space herpy to ruin everything, David.
2: <laughs> and those space herpes, you know, the virus, was the herpes, Yeah, they're, they're yeah. this big.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to mess with that. And
0: nobody wants to put a salve on uh, the sword that shows up from that space herpes. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> we're,
1: talking, well, we're talking about safe SETI here. Exactly. Safe Remember safe. to practice safe SETI, folks.
0: Well, you know what? I want to switch gears here. Since uh, you guys <laughs> brought up dangerous aliens, it... it uh, It actually brought to mind a little game I want to play with the both of you, and it's called uh, From the Brain of Brim or the Dump of Trump. So since we're talking about dangerous aliens, I figure what a perfect way to work Donald Trump into this conversation, because uh, David Brim is known for making some pretty brainy uh, quotes and turning a a very cool phrase. And uh, Donald Trump is known for... Uh, uh, saying stuff so <laughs> so this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna read a quote and uh dr david grinspoon i want you to tell me was it from uh actually the brain of brin or was it from the dump of trump and then uh david brin i want you to confirm whether or not you actually said this is that cool i'm game let's, all right here
1: give, we go let's give it a try
0: here we go here we go here we go <clears throat> Actually, let's see if the, the uh, you know what, and I'm expecting a 100% success rate from you, Dr. Funky Spoon.
1: I know. If I if I can't tell David Brin from Donald Trump, then I don't know. I might need to get my PhD revoked. Okay, I'm going to hold it. All right, now we got stakes in the game. We are
0: playing for Dr. Funky Spoon's PhD. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what did I just say? If
0: you lose this game, you are no longer Dr. David Grinspoon. I don't want to have to go back to grad school, please. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's the first quote self-righteous people can talk themselves into forgetting that they are a part of civilization they can feed on that culture bringing it down it's happened many times in the past it could happen to us again is that from the brain of brin or the dump of trump dr funky spoon
1: that strikes me as a very reasoned and intelligent analysis mm. and i'm going to go with the brain of brin for that one
0: Okay. Uh, David Brin, did you indeed say that
1: he's he, given us the he's thumbs, giving up. Us a
0: thumbs up through the camera? So that is a yes. <laughs> and, uh, and what, what was the context of that, David? What were you, what were you actually talking about when you were talking about self-righteous people very quickly? Just so well, we...
2: we're we're all we're all drug fiends to one degree or another. We get addicted to th- wholesome things like our children, like our skill and our professions and yeah, music, science fiction, and and science fiction. And unfortunately, uh, when we can't find wholesome things to be addicted to, we go for drugs or alcohol or gambling. But now, let's e- leave me out of this, David. <laughs> the, 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 the easiest the easiest drug in the world. To satisfy your addictive cravings is self-righteous rage. Wow! Uh, and and if you can return to a self-righteous snit, right, um, re- regularly at intervals, and we all know people like that, and we all know that we ourselves are yeah. capable of that. Well, it feels good. Yeah, it, it it's, feels it's
0: good a, to be big, self-righteous. I got
2: to be honest. It's the biggest addiction of all. I am so right. Yeah.
0: It's... And
1: everyone else is so wrong.
0: All right. All right. Let's continue with our game. for the brain of Bryn or the dump of Trump, uh, posing a question to Dr. Funky Spoon to figure out if he can figure out who said this. Who said this? I have never seen a thin person drinking Diet Coke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen a thin person drinking Diet Coke. Was that from the brain of Bryn or the yeah. dump of Trump? I am going to go with the dump of trump on that one
0: david did you ever did you ever go on record as saying uh i have never seen a thin person uh no he's giving us the thumbs down i'm pretty good at this yes and you are good at this all right so far you are batting 1000 but guess what there is no room for error because if you screw up we are taking your phd no this game is exciting (laughs) all right who said this okay such a simple statement so this might be a little confusing I find humans tremendously interesting. Whoa. Mm. Mm. The brain of Brim or the dump of Trump?
1: Wow. Ooh, this is almost a trick question. Almost. Anybody could say that. (laughs) I'm going to guess that you're throwing me a curveball here, and I'm going to go with the dump of Trump. Now, I'm just letting you know.
0: Your PhD is on the line here. (laughs) So I don't want to influence your answer in any way, shape, or form. Are you sure you want to go with that?
1: I am going to change my vote. (laughs) And I'm going to say... David the, Brin said that.
0: David Brin, did you indeed say, "I find humans tremendously interesting?"
2: Yes, sure. Yes he yeah. did. Wow. Right.
1: I am so good. I'm just following my instincts here. <laughs> <You> better follow.
2: <laughs> but you'll notice you notice it said as if for, uh, by an outsider. Yes, <laughs> there, there been, I have been accused of, uh, which I have accused of being in one of my novels. I even lay in clues in one of the in on one of the pages that yeah. uh, that I'm uh, actually the front man for an alien.
1: Ah, see, so in fact, you and I could be practicing uh, communication with extraterrestrial intelligence right right now, now and, and we, not even know it. Yeah, that's, that's right. it. Yeah.
2: I believe
0: we just got a an exclusive here, people. I believe we just found out who David Brin really is. He really is. Okay.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Let's, let's do one more, one more from the brain of Brin or oh, the dump of Trump. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me see. I'm going to give you the toughest one there is Dr. Funky spoon. And by the way, I call him that because his Twitter handle is at Dr. Funky spoon. Thank you. For those of you who are wondering, it's not like I just made up some crazy nickname for uh, Dr. Grinspoon. Okay, here we go. This is the toughest one. If I were running The View, I would fire Rosie O'Donnell. I mean, I'd look her right in her fat, ugly face, and I'd say, Rosie, you're fired. Who said that? David Brin or Donald Trump?
1: Well, you know, I've known David Brin for a few years now. Mm-hmm. And I've heard him say a lot of different kinds of things, mm-hmm. but... I'm going to say that is probably from the dump of Trump. So,
0: David Brin, I'm asking you, did you indeed look Donald, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell in her fat, ugly face and say, you fired?
2: I confess. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> wow, you fooled me on that. One. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, uh, she's
0: never going to speak to me again,
2: <laughs> or or for the first
0: time. No, nah, that's very cool. All right, that's our game. That's our game. That was good stuff, guys. That was uh, that was a fun little <laughs> departure. And let's get back to our cosmic queries and some very serious um, questions about uh, signs of life in the universe and right. calling well, each.
1: What do we got, Chuck? Here we
0: go. This is from uh, Jeff Carlisle. He comes to us from Facebook, and he wants to know this. Does NASA or SETI have a set of guidelines for what to do in the event of extraterrestrial contact? How do we respond? Does the public find out? How much information can we share? Are they already here?
1: What's going on? Oh, yeah. Good question. And the the answer is yes. Really? There there is a a protocol. The the SETI community agreed... um, on a protocol that was that was widely ratified for what to do if a message is received Really? And um, it's uh, it's been much harder To get the city community community To agree on the next question Which is What to do if somebody from Earth Wants to send a message We've talked about that a little bit But if so, we so just now can get we... a message Then the, the idea is First you, conform, first you confirm it Okay you Talk to another observatory first To make sure they see it too So we're not we, we, You rule out a fa- false So it alarm. cannot
0: be an anomaly It has to be a confirmed uh, conf- It has to be a confirmed communication yeah. A reception of communication.
1: Yeah. So, so you, don't, you don't alert the media when you're still not sure. Right. But once you're sure, and you, you become sure by alerting other observatories so they can check it out, too, so it's not just some local thing you're okay. observing. And then once you're sure, the protocol is you alert the uh, political leaders, the media. There's a list. There's a protocol. I can't tell you the exact order, but it's the opposite of secrecy. It's like total transparency so, once we're sure.
0: But, but what we do know is Twitter... Is not the first to find out. Like you don't, you don't just tweet out. Man, they, they, they're here. They, they contacted us.
1: Well, it's an interesting question because when these protocols were devised, it was pre-Twitter. But certainly, the person sitting there at the telescope receiver, if they're being responsible, is not going to tweet out, "Wow, I think I see an alien." But once the news, it's decided that yes, this is good. We can release it. I'm sure social media will play a huge role in that. Cool. Yeah, David, do you have anything to add to the the protocol
2: for SETI? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was on the committee that drafted it, and one of the bits that I was most proud of was was the portion of the protocol that says, uh, "and you will leave to the original discoverer the right and honor of making the announcement." Yeah. The, the protocol already makes it very clear that it's nobody's going to be keeping this thing secret, but by leaving it to the discoverer to choose the time and place for a public announcement, this sets in a little bit of a pause. This sets in a little bit of a delay, a phase factor, so that it won't go out on Twitter. So that humanity has at least that you know, one day or so, or two days, in which a sage scientist, leader of a team somewhere, can take a deep breath, mm-hmm. and think about what to say and what to do. Um, that I think that, uh, even the, I'm a, I'm the author of the transparent society. And yet I think that a one day or two day delay, you know, for a little bit of pause and consideration may be wise. Uh, you don't know what the circumstances
0: will be. Yeah. Let's just That's, hope it's not my teenage daughter because it will go like this. I got some big news.
1: Guess what it is. We need to take a, a pause now, but we'll continue with our Q and a, uh, and, uh, wrap this up in a little while. Thank you. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon. And I'm here with Chuck Nice. Yes. And our guest, David Brin. And we're talking about communicating with aliens and uh, including the controversial question of whether we should be revealing ourselves to the cosmos or whether we should be a little bit cautious, not knowing what may be out there. There have been some famous voices out there. Uh, You may have heard Dr. Stephen Hawking has famously said that aliens could come and do us harm. Uh, David Brin has been cautious and he's told us a little bit about that. uh, now, and, and maybe we'll hear a little bit more. There are other people who say, oh, damn the torpedoes. Let's just send messages and see what's out there. What what are we worried about? So it's an interesting debate. I uh, my, my own opinion is that we should, as David says, at least have some kind of a global conversation about it before we just decide that we're going to speak for all of earth and reveal ourselves for all of time. Maybe we can't know for sure what the dangers are, but we it's probably worth at least having some kind of a consultation and not being so arrogant as to say, ah, the hell with it. Let's just see what happens. Man,
0: when you're playing cosmic poker, you don't want to show your hand.
1: I mean, you know,
0: at least until the proper time presents itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is is—it is kind of a puzzle. I'd be interested to know what David Brin thinks of this, but when do you know when it's enough? When are we really ready to say, okay, we know enough to start talking? But at least we could attempt to have some kind of a global buy-in. Uh, David, do you have a, a quick thought on, on on when when it will be okay to uh,
2: to broadcast? Well, it's not so much a particular sum of knowledge that uh, is my criterion, but the rate at which we're learning. Um, we are we are like a four year old who wakes up in a jungle that's quiet, maybe too quiet mm. to use the cliche, and. What do you do under those circumstances? Well, you try to learn as much as you can quietly uh, because there are some conceivable dangers. I think uh, Stephen Hawking exaggerated, um, but it would be good if we were to pay attention to the fact that across the last several thousand years, every time a technologically advanced civilization or species encountered less advanced species, civilization or species, the less advanced ones suffered very, very badly. And that's 100% of the time. Given that, perhaps we should have a little bit of a conversation before running through the jungle going, yoo-hoo, especially since we're learning so fast. Yes. That's the thing. Just 20 years ago, we knew of no planets outside our solar system. Now we know of almost 10,000. Right. Yeah. So at and- this rate of learning, why not? listen and learn so that our children will have the option with all that added information, of deciding for themselves whether they want to shout Yahoo, I yeah, tell seems, you why that
1: seems eminently sensible. It, 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 it does, also, and that's why you don't do it because it, the,
0: recklessness is far more exciting, David. Yeah, let's th- just get it out there, show the whole universe. Like you know, when you say reveal, forget reveal. Let's
1: flash the universe. Oh, We're here. Oh, you're so bold, Chuck. <laughs> wow. The the, the uh, you know th- this also happens to be coming up at a time when we are faced with a range of global issues that require us to try to have some sort of global decision-making or global consultative process. I'm talking about global warming and other issues. It wouldn't hurt for us to learn how to at least attempt to make some sort of a global decision about things. You're never going to reach a perfect consensus with every villager of every uh, place on earth, but you can at least make an honest attempt. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, David,
0: you are a uh, science fiction writer. And I just want to say that I'm about to uh, submit a treatment uh, for Disney's Cosmic Jungle Book, which I think is brilliant. You just came up with. (laughs) 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 Can I I write the songs? Uh, Yeah, man, let me tell you something. There's room for everybody on this train. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So let's move on. How about about another question? Let's jump into another, and this is from Shelly Sock. Shelly Sock, at Shelly Sock on Twitter. She said, what would you most want to know about the aliens? And for them to know about us. So ah. in the game of getting to know you, what are the two most important things that you think
1: should be in that exchange? Yeah, good question, Shelley. What would we most want to know about them and what would we most want them to know about us? Yes. I mean how about you personally and, and, and of course uh, David Bryn too yeah, personally. personally. So, so my personal if I could ask him one thing, it would be how did you do it? How did you survive nice. with a technological civilization? Because I'm assuming, and there's good math behind this, that anybody we hear from has had a technological civilization for quite some time. They're not brand new babies like us. And therefore, they've solved this riddle that we're struggling with now. How do you have this exponentially cre- increasing, more and more powerful technology, and yet not somehow, uh, a- a- and yet use it to, uh, to survive, not to do yourself in. We, right. You could easily see we could do one or the other. I'm thinking and somebody we hear from has learned how to use technology in a mature way. Right. Learned how to handle this global civilization puzzle. So if I could ask him one thing, it'd be like, "Hey, you got any tips for us? how do, How do we do this?" Nice. Um, yeah, uh, D- David Brin, what would you most like to know about them?
2: Well, uh, I would ask. Um, I would. A- I'm a little bit persnickety. I would ask, why do we have to ask you for that help? Why weren't you helping us all along? <laughs> um, you know, this... Uh, I I've what never took you a, so where long? Where the hell were you?
0: <laughs> what I, took, took you so long? long?
2: Never been a believer in ancient aliens. The <laughs> whole notion that we deprecate ourselves is a good thing. We, we flagellate ourselves about how we aren't living up to our hopes and dreams. But to be honest, as animals go... We're actually pretty damn nice, and we've tried very, very hard. And I look across the last six, eight thousand years because I've been around the whole time, <laughs> and at, at all the hard working, desperately eager, well meaning people who um, piled rocks on rocks on rocks to make pyramids in appeals to some kinds of godlike beings to come and help us. And to be honest, we advance to this level ourselves. And in my opinion, that's a point of pride. It's a fantastic accomplishment. And I'm not going to let aliens claim credit for it. I like the way you yeah. think. So That's we, is really good stuff. We're learning
1: a lot about David Brin here, by the way. Not only does he find humans really interesting, but he's been here for at least 6,000 6, years. years. So the, right. the plot so thickens. the very
0: beginning of the Earth itself, 6,000 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, you know what? On that note, let me let me just, uh, I want to do something with you guys because, uh, you know, in Reading both of your uh, materials, uh, one thing, and and seeing you both talk, you know, d- deliver your talks. Um what I find that uh, you both have in common as a thread is this uh, tremendous amount of positivity and your uh, look and outlook perspective on uh, life here on earth and the universe itself is extremely positive. And right now we live in probably one of the most negative times that I can remember. You know, I'm not that old, but still I've, I i can not it's so palpable the negativity that we're experiencing uh primarily through the media so i want i wanted to do something with you guys a little something called the genius pep talk okay now you guys are the geniuses and so what i'd like you to do is to you know in a very succinct fashion tell us tell the world all of us listening why it's going to be okay <laughs> well, it's it's gonna be okay. But why is it gonna be okay?
1: Yeah. Now let's could we cue the Bob Marley? Don't worry about a thing. <laughs> exactly. Every little thing is gonna be all right. There you go. Right. But with, without without singing it, and I'm very interested to hear hear uh, David's answer to this. And I, I a lot of my thinking has been influenced over the years by by, by reading what he has to say about such yeah. matters. But um, I would say um, that you're right. People are focused on the negative, on the obstacles we face. We do face some serious obstacles. I mean, you know, climate change, say no more and, uh, population. And, uh, you know, there, are, there are a lot of scary aspects to our existence right now. On the other hand, I think a lot of that negativity comes from thinking very small and being, uh, obsessed with the, with what's going on right now and what, what's the prospects are for the next few years. Mm-hmm. But if you, Take the longer view, the 5,000-year, the 10,000-year, the million-year view, and you look at the progress of the human race, and and David alluded to this. We are a problem-solving species. We have faced bigger obstacles than we're facing now. The human race has almost gone extinct before, and we survived by reinventing ourselves and finding new ways to cooperate together. If you look at our long-term, I'm talking... Million year history now. That's who we are. We're the problem solving inventive species. And I think that we're just faced with another set of challenges now, and that we'll look back at, at this time a few centuries from now and go, wow, they really thought they were stuck with that uh, silly energy system that was messing up their atmosphere before they invented the. And then now everything's fine. We were inventive. Right. And people are. People are recognizing collectively, globally, that we're in the situation we're in now. And I think that recognition will breed solutions. And I, Sweet. even if the next century is troubling, and it w- may well be, I predict that the next millennium is going to be a really bright one for the human species. Fantastic. Well done. I'm going to sum up
0: what you said by Dr. David Grinspoon says, human beings, like Madonna's career, we're always reinventing ourselves. So... <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go uh D- David Brin tell us tell us why uh the future is not nearly as bad as some people like to say it is
2: this is the dawning of the age of aquarius <laughs> see he's singing too all nice. right look, the the thing is that I agree with everything that David said but the problem is human beings get into traps and one of the traps that we've seen for the last 6,000 years has been uh, feudal pyramids of power that become hyper-conservative and then constrain and repress our creativity and our innovation. The great historian Arnold Toynbee said, those civilizations that thrive are those that invest in in the rambunctious, creative minorities. And we've created a civilization that's good at that. Uh, It's the only diamond shape human civilization in which a well-off middle class is unafraid of the rich and outnumbers the poor. And that's ours. And it's an experiment. It's a revolution. And we didn't look at it a revolution. And there are those in our society right now that are trying to destroy our confidence and hammer us back into the feudal pyramid that's Mm. the traditional human modality. And if that happens, I think that they will squash our creativity enough that we could be in very serious trouble. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's been a lot of propaganda, not just on the right, but also on the far left, that has been gloom and doom and anti-science uh, When, in fact, we're a scientific people, we're a brave people, we're a competent and explorational people, and 2015 was the best year for exploration in the history of our species. So, it's not just humanity that has to be resilient and innovative, but this particular culture. Has to regain its confidence, its belief that we are the bold scientific revolutionaries who can change everything.
1: I, I think we get the gist of what you're you're saying about uh, humanity here, and uh, that that uh, that you feel as though we're we're actually full of promise. And we really appreciate your perspective here. Would love love to hear more about it. And um, but we have to wrap up now. Thank you all so much for joining us today. This has been Star Talk All Star. I'm David Grinspoon on Twitter at Dr. Funky Spoon. My co host, Chuck Nice, That's on right. Twitter at Chuck Nice Comic. And our so. guest today has been David Brin on Twitter at David Brin. Until next time, this is Star Talk All Stars.
0: This is Star Talk.